I'm releasing this audio of a video I did about the Scott Peterson trial because the next part of that retrial is happening today. So last year, a judge ruled that juror misconduct influenced uh, Scott Peterson's sentencing to the death penalty. So today, the judge is going to rule on what Scott Peterson's new sentence will be. This isn't the hugest part of the, the next steps because next year the judge will hold a hearing on whether misconduct played a significant role in his being found guilty at all. But that aside, today is a hallmark date. Here is the recap of Scott Peterson's original trial and some serious issues with evidence, misconduct, and the investigation. We're going to talk about Scott Peterson today and the pending appeal for a retrial. Scott Peterson, you may or may not remember him. If you're like me, um, you were probably a little too young to be fully tuned in at the time, but heard the name a lot. So he, his wife, Lacey Peterson, was eight months pregnant when she disappeared and um, it was later discovered that she had been murdered. Uh, her body was found and the body of her child, potentially born, potentially unborn, they were found separately, um, was also found. These are very sensitive things and I also want to add the caveat that even though we're talking about Scott Peterson who's been convicted of the murder of this woman, um, she should be at the forefront of everybody's minds in terms of what actually happened. Even though I don't believe that he's guilty, certainly not to a legal standard, potentially not at all, she should be the focus, except that she's not when we're talking about law. Anyways, um, anyways, so you can see where my mind is today. But Scott Peterson, um, so yeah, heard about him. This was in 2002, I believe, that Lacey Peterson initially went missing um, on December 24th, on Christmas Eve of 2002. And uh, if you were paying about as much attention as me, honestly, if you were paying more attention, because a lot of the media coverage was so wrong, and I just learned this recently, uh, you probably thought he was a monster. It was like, oh, this is the wife murderer. This is the pregnant wife murderer. This is the heartless bastard. Um, when are they going to nail him? That was kind of the only question. It, you know, before they found her body, it was so implied that it's like, oh, well, he definitely did it. Um, so when will they find her? Uh, then once they found her, then it was like, all right, when are they going to nail him? And thus, he was convicted. And he was actually sentenced to death um, in California. I believe the sentencing was 2004. Um, California right now has suspended the death penalty, but that is a kind of for now thing because California is not like New York. New York, for example, has totally abolished the death penalty by decisive legislation. California has like not passed an amendment to the constitution, the state constitution that bans it. They have done like executive orders staying it. Uh, so it's not as certain that somebody on death row, even though they're not slated for death at the moment, um, that that will not change in future. I mean, California is going through this recall election now, um, potentially to put somebody a lot more conservative in the governor's seat. So you do see it, it is not, not a risk. Um, 
And that's just the sentence piece. Uh, there's also the initial conviction piece. I would not have had any qualms about the conviction at all had I not been, you know, like so many of us, exhausting my TV options during COVID. And I stumbled upon this A&E docuseries that really goes into the evidence. I think it's on Hulu. Um, and shout out to that because it was really, really well parsed. And um, Scott Peterson's sister-in-law, I believe, Janie Peterson, has been working on his appeal. We'll get more to what is actually happening now later. But I walked away from learning about this case um, and then doing some follow-up research on my own, thinking like, oh my gosh, not only do I think the investigation and the trial were so massively flawed that the conviction should be overturned, the trial should be thrown out, um, but obviously that's that's like a criminal proceeding standard standard of proof that's uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, that's a pretty high bar. Um, I also think lower standard of proof that he might actually be innocent. It's not just like this is a flawed proceeding and it can't stand under our constitution. It's like, oh shoot, I actually don't think I think he did it, um, which is a different thing altogether. It matters less in the legal system, but um, it's usually not the calculus I have to go by because you just think constitution and I'm like, oh wait, I, anyways. So what we have that makes up this um, new conviction, no pun intended, that I have um, for his innocence and for his right to a retrial is a bunch of factors. We've got um, problems with the police investigation, um, problems with the media coverage, and some really specific factors that went into how it was covered at the time. Um, problems with how the facts all square together, so like substantive problems with the evidence, and then procedural problems with how the uh, everything from evidence gathering to evidence admissibility at trial to jury selection, procedural issues with the case's proceedings. Um, and that's like from day one when she was reported missing to the sentencing to death to the after sentencing to death um, phases of, of the trial itself. So we got problems all over the place here. Um, we'll start out uh, a way that a lot of folks might remember it because this is what sparked my memory um, was that this was one involving a boat. Uh, and this is, spoiler alert, one of the huge problems is that Scott Peterson, the husband, his alibi, um, which also, like, it factors into the timeline, what could have happened when. Uh, he was documented going to this marina um, somewhere in the Bay Area. But this happened in Modesto, California, was, was where the couple lived. But he was going out in a fishing boat somewhere in the Bay Area on the day of and had receipts reflecting a certain time. So that fact of where he was the day of before he comes home and, and finds that Lacey is missing, um, that was widely circulated and it was circulated in a national news conference, like press conference setting, by Modesto law enforcement. So that's going to be a problem because if whether or not police have decided that he's the main suspect already, which turns out they kind of had, 
Um, sorry, there's rain at my window if you hear it. We got a tornado warning here. But in any case, whether or not the police have decided that he's the main suspect, anybody who wants to deflect suspicion from them, they now know where somebody else involved in the case and very close to this person, you know, the primary person that you look at is the spouse in a circumstance like this. They know where that person was that day. So if you are inclined to deflect attention from yourself, as I'm sure a lot of people trying to cover for a murder would be, they now know where another prime suspect would have been at that time. So uh, about three months later, her body was discovered in I think in the San Francisco Bay, so around where Scott had been fishing on the day that she disappeared. Um, we got some problems there. First of all, in terms of the conviction at large, there's no forensic evidence of this crime connecting not only Scott but anybody to the crime scene, to the body, to really anything. So we have no forensic evidence. Everything that's presented is circumstantial and speculative. It's it's kind of, well, here's where so-and-so was at this time. Who else would have wanted to do something like this? I bet he wanted X. Um, that sort of thing. There's no, there's never a theory presented by the prosecution of how Lacey Peterson was killed um, or how Scott would have did do it. Um, there's never like a murder weapon proposed. There's not a theory of how he disposed of her body. Because again, after the day that she disappeared, the 24th, um, and he comes back from the marina, then the search is on. So he couldn't have been hiding her body after then um, or killing her after that, you know, if he, if he had her somewhere and then killed her. There's no capacity for that after the police are in the house, there's media coverage on the case, like his whereabouts are kind of accounted for after that point. So it has to be the day of, and it has to be in this window uh, between when Lacey was last seen, this brings us to our next problem, uh, and between when law enforcement come, which I think is like by the next morning they're I think by that night, actually, they're they're on the case, so to speak, and looking around the house. But witnesses, we have this problem now. Um, so there were, I guess, the last accounted sightings of Lacey Peterson are when she's walking her dog named Mackenzie. <laughs> Sit with that. Uh, she's walking her dog around the neighborhood, and there are a number of witnesses who, this is like around slash after 10 a.m. in the morning on the 24th. There are a number of witnesses, there's like a circular or a loop in this park. And along this loop, you can kind of track where witness accounts see her and say, you know, hair color, pregnant, um, white blouse, black leggings, with this dog, um, I saw her at around this time. And so you chart these different witness accounts um, that do not come from law enforcement. They don't come from the investigators, but they're interviewed in this documentary. They say, like, we told police, we reported this, nobody ever followed up with us. Um, 
And police, their explanation for not consulting the witnesses is, well, there's no way she was walking her dog then because she must have been dead by then if, if Scott did it. It's like, but that is, that's presuming the outcome and thus foreclosing a different reality. So in any case, you can track these witnesses' accounts at different times. And boy, I think there were like over six of them who saw her along this route. Um, and the problem for law enforcement is that the timing of the last witness, at least, I forget if there was one or multiple who disagree with this, but if one of them is correct, it means that Lacey was walking the dog and alive at 10.45 around that time, which is a time that Scott Peterson is already at work. And he's, you know, recorded being on his work computer doing something, um, like Monday, I think he sends Christmas greetings to people. He looks up instructions on how to assemble some, he did like wood stuff or mulch to some sort of business like that. And there was some machinery that had to be assembled that did wood stuff. And so he looks up instructions on that. Um, it wasn't a wood chipper, by the way, it, like it doesn't connect to, it wasn't something that was like violent. Um, but so under the police's theory, which in and of itself is a little questionable, he must have killed her, then gone to work and done this, but had her body with him while he's doing these like mundane work things. Um, which seems weird to me, it's not impossible. It doesn't foreclose that story. It just, um, it's a little far-fetched. And then it becomes even more far-fetched when you add that like, if that's not the case, there are all these, everything else kind of fits because that means that all these other like six plus witnesses, their stories are correct. And she was alive by the time he was documented being somewhere else and was somewhere else then for the rest of the day and couldn't have done it. Um, so police just didn't really entertain that. I think it's one of those cases where law enforcement had made up their mind and then something came up that conflicted with that account and so they discounted that. Um, and in a case like this, which a lot of us will remember was, um, like garnered a huge amount of national attention and we'll, we'll get into why that was and kind of the perfect storm there. But in a case like this, law enforcement wants to wrap it up, you know, like obviously there's always that impetus when it's your job to do something and there's no resolution yet, but especially when the eyes of the nation are on Modesto PD, um, those are some high stakes. This is probably the only time the eyes of the nation are ever going to be on Modesto PD. And everybody's feeling emotionally connected to this. So people's emotions are running high. Um, so I don't think it's a great reason not to follow things up, but you can on a human level understand where that drive comes from. Now, don't let it dictate your work, but or do. Um, the most interesting alternate theory, though, which alternate, honestly, it, it smacks of truth even more, and it fits with this witness timeline as well. There was a burglary across the street from the Peterson's house on the 24th of December. So on that day, there was a burglary on the neighbor's house right across the street from the Peterson's. They're out of town for the holidays. Now, later, 
the police, when asked about this lead, um, and this is like a while later, um, it's not like an hour later, whatever, um, days later on, somebody asks about this because it's become publicized that this did happen. Police say, oh no, it couldn't have been that because it turns out that burglary was on the 26th, which is all well and good, but media coverage of this case started on the 24th. And so this A&E documentary, again, does a great job of going through not only neighbor witnesses who are like, no, we were watching part of the burglar's story because they eventually do um, talk to these guys, allegedly, um, like have one interview with law enforcement and then they're, they're let go. Um, I didn't hear anything convincing about the interview either, but... The, the burglars and other witnesses in the neighborhood say that the burglars took the, at like 6 a.m., I think was the time that it happened on whatever day, they took the safe from these people's house and put it on the front lawn because it was too big or too heavy to like do it in one movement. So it would be very clear to anybody on the street, any passersby, any, say, media with cameras, stationed in the front yard of the Peterson house, if this is happening, right across the street. Um, and so reporters and neighbor witnesses all say, no, we were there then. Um, that's not, there's no way that this happened because we were literally standing outside with cameras on the morning of the 26th through the night of the 25th. Like, they were stationed out there. They did not see burglars come, uh, take a safe out, make a getaway. It just didn't happen that way. Um, so that is a really compelling story. And then you add this confrontation tip that defense counsel only got after Scott Peterson's trial, but there is a report, a tip came into Modesto police that I guess was not turned over, um, which is, depending on when it came in, of questionable legality in terms of adequate assistance of counsel um, and giving them the option to assist. But a report came in from a lieutenant in another jurisdiction that they'd gotten a tip that Lacey had actually gone out or somebody matching her description, a pregnant lady had gone out and confronted the burglars when they were in the process of doing this. And they said, you know, this pregnant lady dressed a certain way, went out, starts yelling at them. Somebody reported that she like beat herself. And then I don't recall if they say she was ushered into the van or, or what there was no there was definitely no resolution of like her leaving uh, independently so that to me it's pretty freaking suspect um and that was not an alternate theory certainly the tip didn't exist at trial um for whatever reason defense counsel didn't bring up these other witnesses and the timeline they created sometimes those things create questions of their own and it's always a crapshoot hindsight is 2020 but looking at it now, um, it certainly seems like the most likely explanation of the facts on that day is not Scott Peterson doing it. Now, maybe you disagree. I forget. Did we talk about we talked about the alibi and that that was publicized and so then that the body was found in a similar place? Oh, here's one other thing that is worth talking about with the evidence and the timeline there. So this is a little sensitive because it does have to do with body stuff, so if this is something that you don't, um, that you're not as macabre, or I, I'm always very curious about these sort of things. I had, um, a good friend who 
drowned. And so I happened to look up a lot of things like this at the time and read about tides and read about um, the movement of water and the conditions of, of bodies in water. It is very unlikely, especially in the ocean, that a body stays where it is left, even for an overnight. Um, tides do all sorts of crazy stuff. And um, a lot of bodies left in the ocean, I mean, this is why people dispose of bodies in the ocean, because there's no, um, it's a very low incidence of bodies found in that medium in comparison to other media. Uh, so to me, having no expert knowledge of tides in that area, granted, it is very surprising that a body left in, if it was left there when she was missing, when she was first reported missing, so on the 24th, and it stayed there for like roughly three months without being um, migrated by tide activity is kind of surprising. It seems very unlikely that if Scott had left the body there on the day that Lacey went missing, that it would have stayed in the place where Scott was on the 24th. Uh, so that in and of itself, to me, is what we call a reasonable doubt about that element. The body of her baby was also found separate from her body. Now, I think the prosecution's theory is that tide activity removed it and all of her internal organs, because her organs were also uh, outside of the body. Again, you get a little bit of a conflict in my mind if the tides are so inconsequential that she stays, that she and the baby stay roughly where they were left for months, and where they were left happens to be where Scott was the day of. But the tides were strong enough to take out the vital organs and dislodge her then intact fetus, presumably. You know, it seems surprising. Now, the defense had an expert witness who additionally testified to the baby, who was going to be named Connor. The size of the baby in comparison to, you know, the gestational phase in general, so like the age of the fetus being eight months and change, uh, and its weight at the last measuring, so I guess the last OB appointment that Lacey had gone to, that the size of the baby slash fetus as found indicated that there had been further growth or aging, and potentially that it had survived outside of her and lived beyond the 24th. So if she died again on the 24th, which is the only day that it could have been Scott, that it could not have been done by Scott. Because if the baby kept aging, then whether within or without the mother, uh, that couldn't have been under Scott's care, you know? Uh, so that was expert evidence that was disagreed, disagreed upon at trial. Um, from what it sounded like, the defense's expert unfortunately had like a kind of breakdown under cross-examination where he got frustrated that somebody was grilling him, which I totally understand. As somebody who did mock trial, I'm sure it is nine times more scary in a real circumstance when it's your expertise on trial. That said, it's your job, you gotta kinda know the stakes there. Um, 
I never said, just give me a break when I was in Mako also, so. Um, that could explain though why more credence wasn't, was, why more credence wasn't given to that evidence at trial. Um, oh, oh, and there was also uh, twine wrapped around certain parts of the baby's body and taped on his ear. Now it's possible that that is something that happened also, I guess, like due to tides or debris or something, but it's very, again, <laughs> unlikely to me that something gets knotted in two places around a baby that at, on the 24th was still inside Lacey. So if Scott did it, would not have been outside the body. I think the only way that it would have been bound is if it was outside the body. Whether that be after Lacey was killed by someone else and then, you know, baby survives or she gave birth later, I don't know, but it doesn't really fit with the Scott timeline scenario to me. So that's what we have. Um, as a side note, this didn't come up at trial because I think, again, it, it was the product of later investigation. But seven pregnant women in the three-year period before Lacey went missing uh, also went missing in the Modesto area, which um, I don't know average numbers, but especially in an area with probably not that dense a population, that seems significant. Um, and again, to maybe point to another theory, one of them, in fact, who disappeared and was subsequently found murdered within six months of Lacey Peterson, was found in the same location, so in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the same condition. So, um, you know, they, they just found Lacey's torso, they found the baby separated, uh, the limbs were missing, that was exactly the condition that this other woman, who within six months also went missing when pregnant, all of it was the same in that sense. There's also another gal who um, investigators questioned, I think after the trial as well, it's in the, the documentary, so I don't know when the first time they spoke was. But, uh, so they questioned this other gal who, at around eight months pregnant in the Modesto area, had a confrontation with two strangers who came into her store, tried to assault her, tried to get her into the car. She managed to run out the back and get away, but she'd never seen them before. She felt very, very uneasy about the circumstance, and she was also like eight months plus pregnant. So that to me seems like, who knows, it could be a total bust, but it seems like high numbers of similar uh, victimology in that area, in that time. All right, now we'll talk about the infidelity, which was also a fun, salacious piece that the, um, the tabloids really enjoyed. Um, this really baffles me because there's so much hypocrisy, we all know this, but in our collective thinking and, you know, what we choose to hate and not hate and publicize and not publicize, I, there are so many instances of infidelity in this world, in our lives, in each person's individual life, we encounter it, not just anecdotally, I think. Um, you know, whether it be a coworker or a friend or a friend's friend or your own partner um, or you, like this is not as few and far between an incidents as murder. Um, 
I think. I tend to think. Uh, and when somebody does it in quote-unquote real life, in our personal lives, it rarely, rarely engenders this level of indignance. Um, indignation? Whatever. Indignity? <laughs> People aren't this mad about it as they were about Scott Peterson and as this seemed to be like the first uh, domino to fall in terms of, of really hating this person. And, you know, I don't want anybody to ever be hated with that kind of vitriol, that unforgivable vitriol that allows people to see the absolute worst, worst in them. But it's just so hypocritical when you see the type of hatred directed at him. And it's like, how perfect are you? Um, have you never seen this in your personal life? Have you never been guilty of this? Have you never let it slide when somebody you care about does it? You know? So I don't get it. I don't get it. This is not how we handle infidelity in real life. But I don't know. We never hold dudes more accountable than when we can see a mighty person fall. Um, and we never societally value women more, it seems, than when they're pregnant. I mean, especially this happened around Christmas. You got kind of like a Mary thing going and you have this pretty woman, this otherwise like happy idyllic couple that people are probably kind of mad at if they can't be that. Um, you want to see the handsome guy fall and you want to see the angelic pregnant lady who also like doesn't speak for herself in this narrative. Um, she's put in this angelic level. And so then in retrospect, like infidelity against that, given the current circumstances is seen as, as the worst crime in the world. Um, I'm, I'm pro supporting women, but I do think that this is like a suspect way to do it. And these people probably aren't necessarily supporting their own wives in the same way. I don't know. Just have a feeling. Um, so I think that those, those, typographs of both Scott in his role and Lacey in her role at that time, you know, Christmas, wholesome morality, um, adding to this whole like family values vibe. Um, I think that that doesn't mean nothing in how it was perceived at the time. I think, I think, uh, his face is honestly part of it. He has a kind of permanent smile and it can, and he also has eyebrows kind of like mine, um, where they are always a little bit cocked. And so they can look very sinister. And if you add that to a smile, he kind of always looks like he's smirking. And I really think it's just his face. And my mom said he should be convicted just for having that face. I don't tend to agree with that, but I do. <laughs> I think that there is a piece of our like knee jerk kind of like Martin Shkreli, he had a punchable face. Um, and he was otherwise a fully bad person, definitely. But the face doesn't help. Then one thing that plays into so many cases in so many different ways is emotional expectations. And to me, it is the goofiest way to track guilt or innocence. Um, but you hear so frequently Usually it's used in cases where somebody, like, we already know they're guilty, and so then you can, in retrospect, go back and say, like, oh, you know, you didn't cry, so I always wondered. 
um, with the support of knowing now. But I'm not a big crier. In fact, I and my family all tend to deal with death and tragedy with a real gallows humor. Uh, because, I don't know, there's like a, a bitter but also keep yourself afloat sort of thing. Also, stability, because almost if you don't force composure on yourself and functionality on yourself, there's a risk that it all falls apart. You add to that something like a masculinity complex, which there were some things that I heard in some interviews where he's like, well, you don't want to allow yourself to just like break down. And the human part of me was like, why? But I also do understand that this is a pressure that a lot of um, straight men doing a traditional straight man thing have and have gotten from a lot of sources. So people pointed to the fact that he like uh, wanted people to use a coaster when the police were over. And oh my god, I could see myself easily having impulses of like crazy angsty anxiety and want it, you know, the one thing that you have left to control is your home. So. You can think of explanations for it, but even that aside, there is no accounting for how people grieve. There's no accounting for, even if he didn't, I'm not saying this is the case, but even if he didn't care about her that much, that doesn't mean he did it. Just like even that he was being unfaithful doesn't mean that he did it. Um, if it did, boy, I know a lot of murderers. I mean, if that equates with violence, we should be a lot more careful everywhere. Um, you know, if not being into your partner, who you're married to, is a call for suspicion about likelihood towards violence towards them, um, I don't think that is accurate. So, you know, if it were part of a picture with more evidence and a theory, sure, throw it in the bag. But as its own starting point, which ended up being kind of the only concrete thing that we had, eh. Then the other thing is, when somebody's being unfaithful, all of a sudden on the flip side, we have an explanation for why they seemed extra weird or jittery or uh, seemed like, you know, you thought that they had something to hide. So... It's like, oh, it wasn't murder, he was just kind of a D-bag, and he didn't want people to find out he was being a D-bag, because that looks really awful. <laughs> then the last thing about the uh, the media coverage and the timing that I think is really important is that, oh, apparently, like, during Christmas there tends to be a news lull, so we're looking for filler stories. Not that this is a, you know, filler content, but that a local murder case made national headlines in a non-celebrity context is unusual. Um, it's also, like, end of 2002, it's around when we're transitioning to the 24-hour news cycle, and that means that news outlets are, they have a lot of space to fill that wasn't there before. They're also maybe not as up to speed at fact-checking things before they get them through the cycle and onto the air. Some would argue they still have not mastered that in all circumstances, but... Um, you can point to some headlines that made it through in this case that a lot of us probably heard. And then, you know, you feed the beast because once you hear one sordid thing, now the interest is developed and you want more and more. So you get things fast and you turn them out fast. And uh. But there are a couple of things that were, um, ended up being patently false and were just like rumors or I don't know what, that there wasn't even a grain of truth there. 
but that, what do they say? There's something like retractions, though, are printed on page 10. So nobody necessarily sees that those pieces are being recalled. But there was a, like a story that he, that the house had smelled like bleach when law enforcement got there. And apparently that just fully, there were no reports of that. Um, maybe somebody heard like the coaster thing and they're like, oh, so it meant he was cleaning. Oh, so it probably meant he was cleaning like a body was there. Oh, so bleach. Like you could see maybe that happening. Um, but so that was fully false, but that was reported and it was reported on a national scale because that this story happened to escalate. Um, there was another headline, I guess, about, oh, about before he was arrested, I guess he had bleached his hair and was driving around in a more Southern town. And people were like, oh, he was trying to get away from law enforcement before being arrested. He's going to Mexico. And he bleached his hair because he's trying to disguise and he's going to Mexico. Well, it turned out, first of all, he had spoken with law enforcement in person that morning with the bleached hair. So they knew he looked like that. That wasn't a hiding from the police thing. They had already seen him. It, don't go talk to the people you're going on the lam from if your point is to disguise from them. So that's out the window. Then it turns out that the town that he was arrested in, just like closer to San Diego than the Bay Area, uh, was where his family lived. And then you add to that that he wasn't staying at home because obviously it was a crime scene and he was trying to get away from media attention. And the cars that came to arrest him were unmarked police vehicles. So he thought that it was media and he was staying with his family. So you hear the way that that story is spun the first time. It's like, oh my gosh, he's bleaching his hair. He's driving south to Mexico. And it turns out just kind of, wow, this guy's really unlucky in a verifiable way that this, this can't be him being on the run. Also, if he was on the run on top of the bleach hair thing, why would he talk to law enforcement voluntarily earlier that day and have a not And then he went voluntarily when realizing they were law enforcement. So I suspect also that there's an OJ element to it because like five years after OJ, OJ's conviction and that being another nationwide California, the young woman murdered and miscarriage of justice in the eyes of many in a criminal murder trial because the guy had everything. I mean, Scott Peterson was no OJ, but he was hot, successful straight man accused of murdering his wife in the same state and within a couple years. So I think a lot of people were really conscious of another figure like that and another case going wrong. And they were looking for blood, kind of. All right, the last category, and this is the most relevant to the upcoming appeal, um, potential petition for a retrial based on the jury misconduct issues. So basically things that deprive him of his constitutional right to a fair trial is what the, the defense is arguing that the flaws were so great that he effectively did not have a fair trial. But then there's also in California, um, a state habeas proceeding. So habeas corpus is that other constitutional right that's like you have to show the body of evidence that supports this person. It's like have body. So um, you have to prove that there is sufficient support and evidentiary support for holding this person and for punishing this person. So in California, the state habeas proceeding, 
can introduce new evidence. So that's good in terms of all these other things about, um, I mean, it's good. We haven't granted all these things yet, but it is a good opportunity because things like the other pregnant women and this police report of somebody seeing her confront the burglars, uh, those things could be investigated more. Whereas with just the fair trial piece, usually parties are limited to the evidence produced at the first trial. But with this, you potentially could add more evidence. So a lot of the issues um, are with the jury. And this is the most absurd jury nonsense I've, I've ever heard. And when you say absurd, it's always a little bit muted in trial circumstances because everything is, is more muted and subdued and uh, procedural. But it's pretty bad. So first of all, in a case like this, where it's it's gotten media attention of such a level and for so long by the time that it comes to trial, um, you have what they call stealth jurors. So people who, I mean, any one of us could do this, but people who say the right things and they know they're saying the right things and they know they're doing it because they want to get on this jury. So if they ask you, for example, um, you ever heard of Scott Peterson? You're like, no, boy, I guess I just don't have a TV, so like I haven't heard the story, but it, it's a big deal, huh? I see cameras outside. Like, And the bad thing about that, besides the obvious, um, is that usually people like that err towards one side. It's usually not people who want to advocate for his innocence and for like, not even his innocence, but a fair trial. Um, it's usually people who have a vendetta and have decided that he is a murderer and they want to see him fry because those are the people driven enough to uh, perjure themselves and, you know, potentially invalidate a whole trial in a circumstance where we're at now. That's a problem. Then um, they're not sequestered. So sequestered, granted, for a case like this that's really long and really involved and with the state of media, I don't even know how you do it now. But even in 2002, for such a pervasive story, how are you fully going to sequester people from hearing it? So that's the kind of thing where uh, juries are kept isolated for the duration of the trial. So, you know, the, the state pays for a holiday in near the courthouse and people don't put the go on the computer. They get their own hotel rooms and they can watch movies, but they can't watch the news. And they are basically isolated to the best of the court's ability without being in like carceral conditions, um, which again, there's always gonna be some wiggle room, especially now, but it's ideal for any case that is going to have such biased coverage. And we see in retrospect now that it biased coverage isn't even accurate coverage. So you potentially, and in a case like they weren't sequestered here, so they could be going home, turning on the news and hearing that he was fleeing to Mexico. And then you think, oh, well, maybe it didn't get into trial because of whatever evidentiary stuff. You never know. Um, but I know that he was fleeing to Mexico. So it's tough because so many jury based things are on your own honor. And it is just not financially or other resource feasible to enforce those things, nor is it fair. I mean, you can't whether people are sequestered or not, you can't follow them to their room at night and make sure they don't go online or have their house to make sure they don't talk to their spouse or their kid. So a lot of these things are loopholes in every proceeding, but especially in a case like this where 
there is a lot of media coverage and people are waiting with bated breath for every development and every story is going to make the proverbial front page because people want to hear it. If it leads, it leads. So they're not sequestered. You got a high bias just going into it. Um, then you got a lot of misconduct. Some of it came out during the proceedings, some after. Neither of those categories was handled, in my opinion, well. First of all, you have the foreman of the jury. And so he was named foreman. I think they said he was a doctor and a lawyer, um, which like, damn, okay. So this is somebody who knows how to comb through text and evidence and fact. They said, other jurors said, you know, he had stacks of notes. We felt inadequate because he would make us go through each thing and he would make us talk about the same things over and over again, just to make sure. They literally admitted a, a number of jurors who now are interviewed because the gag order has long been lifted. They're like, he was, it was annoying. He was making us look at these same things over and over again. And we just wanted to get it over with. So eventually, one of the other jurors threatens him physically, and he goes, the foreman, um, the guy who's threatening them apparently speaks for the whole group, and they say they want a new foreman because this guy isn't um, facilitating them making progress. Uh, so eventually, the foreman, after being physically threatened, leaves. He's like, I, I'm out. And the guy who threatens him, and they tell the judge this at the time, the guy who threatens them gets to stay in. So this aggressive, pro-guilty person who doesn't want to look at facts has physically intimidated somebody who does consider facts and was otherwise leading the consideration of the evidence. One gets to stay and the other one leaves. That's insane to me. Um, that should have been a mistrial hung jury sort of situation right there. The fact that this threatener was allowed to stay is crazy, and he comes up again later, by the way. So, Foreman is out. They replace him with an alternate juror, and her name is Rochelle Nice or Nice, spelled nice, yeah. She reportedly, because this is such a, a well-covered trial, journalists have been watching everybody, including the alternates. They're like, she was crying through the whole trial. She got super emotional and really, um, the only word that comes to mind is loud. I don't mean like volume loud, but like expressive uh, in a way that she was very upset about a lot to do with the baby. And uh, she called Connor, the baby, Connor Peterson, the fetus slash baby who was, Lacey was either pregnant with or gave birth, depending on, you got it. She called him little man and she's like, oh, he killed the little man. Let's do this. What, how are we going to do this? That's how she like came in to the meeting. She basically was like, he's guilty. How are we going to get him for killing little man? After the trial, this doesn't come out until after he's been convicted, sentenced to death. It comes out that she has been less than honest on a number of occasions. She answered no to three separate questions on the juror questionnaire on intake that she should have answered yes to. And that was, have you ever been a victim of a crime? Uh, let's see. Oh, have you ever been a litigant? 
you've ever been a victim of a crime? Have you ever been involved in a legal proceeding? She said no to all of those. In fact, that is not the case. She also didn't disclose independently that she had been involved in a proceeding very similar to this one. She herself, when she was pregnant, it came out, had to seek like a TRO, a temporary restraining order, which then went to some sort of court proceeding. So it got to that point. She was felt that the life of her baby was being threatened by somebody and thus had to take out this temporary restraining order against them. And that escalated to a legal proceeding in which she was a party and called as a witness. So, so she said her best answer, such as it is, when interviewed about it now, is that that didn't even come to mind. What did she say? My case never came into my thoughts. I find that hard to believe. Whether it's true or not, the defense was entitled to know that. Um, that is, regardless of whether she was lying or it was an honest mistake, doesn't matter. The defense was entitled to know that. And that alone, I think, is arguably enough to call the whole jury into question. But so after she's impaneled, after the alternate is impaneled, it takes less than nine hours, less than one full day before they declare him guilty. So that is, for those of you who have either been familiar with jury trials or even seen it on like a courtroom procedural, um, less than a day deliberation is crazy. Less than nine hours is really crazy. And presumably this is a new person. Like everything needs to start again when you have a new jury composition. So they reviewed all the evidence in it's crazy. It really is remarkable. It was like she was impaneled Thursday afternoon, Friday morning. They had returned a guilty verdict. So that doesn't seem super thoughtful to me. Not grounds to overturn it on its own, but wow. Um, then there's a separate proceeding um, for whether you sentence him to death. Different states do this differently. But California has, I guess, the same jury do it, but uh, then decide on the sentence. The first issue with this is just a general sense that if you have a death-qualified jury, there's, there's going to be some sort of question that asks if you are comfortable putting somebody to death. And automatically that skews towards a certain type of like people who are comfortable with the death penalty. And that isn't necessarily an adequate sampling of peers. It's not really random at that point. It's picking people who are comfortable doing this. So it kind of defeats the whole purpose of having a jury of your peers decide whether the sentence is apt. If you are only picking peers who will say the sentence is apt. Um, it's so unlikely that, that that is going to act the same as a jury of random people, regardless of what kind of punishment they support. Now, apparently, but my understanding is that the judge in this case took out a second question, which made it even more crazy. So typically, how I think it's supposed to go, is you ask first, are you comfortable with the death penalty or, or some more formal iteration thereof? If you say no to that, what you typically need, and apparently need by a constitutional decree per Supreme Court decision that's like over half a century old, 
you have to follow it up or the judge has to follow it up with a question. That aside, do you feel confident that you could apply the law in this case regardless? And then if somebody says yes, okay, then not being in support of the death penalty per se doesn't mean that you can't apply the law fairly. You can be on. The judge here dismissed anyone who answered no to the death penalty, didn't ask this follow-up question that could allow some of them on if they say they can apply it fairly. Um, so that is a very, very pro-death jury to begin with. And we have another problem. Again, with this sentence, the death sentence piece, we don't know if that's ever fully going to come to fruition, but it's a problem. Then I, uh, there was a bar nearby the courthouse and one of the bartenders told an attorney who was not a party to the case, but was aware of it, maybe covering it. I don't know why she was there. Um, so this bartender is like, oh yeah, the jurors come in here and they were talking about how they're going to get him. They're going to make him fry. Uh, they're super excited to write books about it afterwards, about how they voted to put him to death and, and whatnot. And so this lawyer is like, are you kidding? Like now I'm an officer of the court. I have to report this to the judge. She did. The judge held a hearing about it. Apparently the one who said the most was this threatener guy, the one who got the foreman uh, kicked off by physically threatening him and apparently survived that challenge. So um, the judge holds, hi Squeaky. The judge holds a hearing to question this bartender and see if, if it was juror misconduct sufficient of kicking this guy off. Come on, baby. And the bartender, for whatever reason, like takes the fifth, doesn't testify. So that ne evidence never comes in, but I don't know. There's a limit to what judges can do sua sponte, so like making decisions on their own without anybody making a motion. But when you have the same guy with pretty blatant misconduct, about as blatant as juror misconduct can get, physically threatening somebody who doesn't share your beliefs, then talking about how you've made up your mind already, essentially bragging in public about how you are going to orchestrate the death sentence being carried out on this person. Um, that's about as bad as it gets. And I would hope that one witness not testifying would not be the bar to anybody, um, to the judge deciding that, that something had gone too far. It seems like enough problem had been introduced at that point to at least, you know, impanel a new jury. I don't know. We've already sunk so much resource into this case. Do it right. You can save a lot of effort in the future. Anyways, so... That's where that is. Uh, none of the jurors after or since have ever fully articulated how they think it was done, um, where they think the murder occurred, the weapon, you know, any of that stuff where I set up at the beginning that there's no good theory about it. Uh, none of the jurors have, in fact, there was like an interview with one of them, not any of these ones, but yet another one on Larry King. And Larry King was like, so what do you think happened? How do you think it happened? And the juror was like, can you explain? And Larry King's like, no, you explain. You're the one who just decided beyond a shadow of a doubt that it happened. How did it happen? And the guy's like, well, I think it's more important that like, it's super clear that he did do it, not necessarily how he did it. That to me doesn't sound like a fact-driven jury. 
Obviously, there was a ton of media, social, public, and law enforcement pressure in this case. You don't want to be, it would not be easy to be the person who says not guilty in a case like that. Uh, I could see the pressure on the judge, too, even though it shouldn't pressure judges as much as it, they're supposed to be a little above that, um, and more fact and evidence driven. But the judge in the OJ case got a lot of hate, and potentially rightfully so there. You don't want to be that judge. Um, and certainly probably would have taken a lot more flack had he presided over a trial that found Scott Peterson innocent than he has having presided over a very flawed one that found him guilty. So now, my big take. So now, apparently the judge, uh, who is a different judge, deciding if a retrial is is granted, warranted here, uh, will, I think the next step is a hearing, like a two-week-ish hearing, beginning of next year, about whether a retrial is warranted. So it would be reviewing all this type of stuff. And so that's where we are now. And then the retrial would just determine if, it wouldn't say he's innocent, it would just do everything again, hopefully the right way. So uh, somebody had asked if, like, what the next step is. The next step is this hearing. He stays in prison till then, and until or unless there's an innocent verdict. So there would have to be a new trial, and then that new trial would have to end in innocence or, you know, some lesser sentence to time served if there was some other issue. Uh, and I think somebody else had asked, is he still going to spend the rest of his life in prison? Not necessarily, because the retrial is would be for the ideally for the whole thing, because the juror misconduct, at least some of it, I guess technically you could just have a retrial on the sentence, although given that the death penalty isn't happening now, it would be good but not great or super necessary to do that again, um, if it's just that. But I would hope and think strongly that if a retrial was warranted, given the pervasiveness in the same jury, uh, affected by the misconduct that you would do the whole thing again, not just the sentencing. And so there would be a chance that he does not spend the rest of his life in prison if that all went well. So there's that. Um, I, I can't even talk about the abortion law thing, man. You can ask me questions about it. I will say more at some point. I'm just so good. Anyways, Scott Peterson maybe, probably is innocent, and I believe deserves a new trial. Personal opinion does not reflect my employers or anything else, but hot damn, uh, shows it's worth relearning things because I never would have questioned it until unless I questioned it. So check out that a and &E documentary, check out uh, Janie Peterson, I think has a Twitter, and there's a Scott Peterson appeal on both Twitter and Instagram, and um, if somehow you're watching this without following me, at MKZJoyBrennan on all the platforms. And it's me and my cat signing off. <laughs>